everybody. Welcome back to Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. This week I am, well, I have been actually down in North Carolina in the Outer Banks, which is a funny thing that now people are like home of John B. But not only was that show filmed in Wilmington, my life was just simply not as mysterious, spooky, or I don't know, sepia-toned as the kids on the show Outer Banks. I didn't really watch too much of it. I think I did a Patreon recap that my husband wrote for you guys because he uh, he watched it and you guys were like wanted me to talk about it last year, but I just couldn't get into it. Um, I grew up going there, but mostly just in search of a vacation boyfriend, you know, a gal with a shark tooth necklace, a toe ring and a dream um, and never rode off into the sunset uh, with a guy named Riley like American Ashley movie. That was always my dream, but my parents didn't let me ride Vespas with strangers and also strangers never talked to me. Um, so every time I'm there, I just feel so nostalgic. We, we did a fun episode a year, maybe two years ago. Actually, the first time I was pregnant, I think, um, called If You Can't Tone It Tangent, where people share their like summary stories, pool stories, summer camp stories. That was a really fun one. But yeah, I don't know. Every time I like... Go, something about the lore of going to an East Coast beach town is just so special to me. And, you know, am I living my best life in my third trimester? Not really, because to pull off the breezy Kate Bosworth vibes I've been going for since the year 2000, I'd have to be able to like boogie board. My favorite official sport of childhood that you have no idea is not an official sport at all that like adults don't really do. I'm kind of like tubing. Uh, glamorous nonetheless. But yeah, can't lay on my stomach, really affecting my vibe. I will say, though, since my parents were always, you know, they were selective with souvenirs. Like we I go hard for a souvenir, but I had to choose wisely, if at all. Um, it's like when you get older, you're, you know, the target changes of what you consider FU money that you would get excited about. But it is kind of fun to go to these towns. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've I'm an adult who earns a living. Is this this is FU Roxy or Quicksilver clothing money? And granted, I mean, the bikini separates that I A can't fit one boob into and B I'm not gonna be buying, you know, they're still like eighty to a hundred dollars. I'm sure they were less back then, but I just remember being like, There's no way in hell I'm ever going to be afford this couture at the Ronjon. But like now I can and now it's suddenly less appealing. But I've wanted to be a surfer or a skater or, or in a big way when I was younger and I don't know. Part of me just salivates looking at those license plates with your name on it. <laughs> Tiny jars of sand. <laughs> um, anyway, guys. So this week, since I was on vacation, I pre-recorded it because I, ever since writing a book and realizing uh, how much work it is and how hard it is to get it out there um, and wanting to just support people that make stuff of great quality. Uh, I've, as you know, been interviewing people who've been writing books about things I find so interesting. And um, this week is no exception. I think I've, we've talked about before how I'm a fan of the podcast, The Kinswomen. And they've been featured all over places like The Cut and Goop. They've named the best one of the best podcasts of 2020 by Elle, Cosmopolitan, and Marie Claire. The hosts, Hannah and Izu, are friends in real life, and they use their platforms to help normalize conversations about race and racism, especially among friends. I think that's, I mean, I ended up splitting up my book and the topics I talked about the most were like uh, friendship feelings, fangirls and fitting in or whatever. 
And I think friendship is a topic I always want to uh, continue to explore. And it's the thing that comes up most when people call into Kate Lila, whether it's making friends, drawing boundaries, you know, how to better support friends, so on and so forth. We're like we've talked about everyone's in such vastly different phases around your 20s or 30s. And also, I think that in the past few years, as the social dialogue has changed, as we've had a lot of different issues and changes in the political climate and during a public health crisis and pandemic and going through a time where via unfortunately tragic circumstances, there was a lot more social dialogue surrounding race and racism and white supremacy. And I think these things that happen in the world around us end up affecting our friendships, the way we communicate our beliefs, the way we can uh, support one another and communicate our values with clarity. And I don't know, I just I think this conversation is always relevant and always important. And the book we're talking about today with the authors and creators of the Kinswomen podcast, Izu Mukantabana and Hannah Summerhill, is called Real Friends Talk About Race. Bridging the gaps through uncomfortable conversations. And not only do they tell the, their individual stories from their own points of view and kind of alternate, they also explore like the discomfort they've ex experienced within their own friendship from how they met to how they interact on a daily basis with business. And I think it just helps readers to feel like they have the ability to have an honest dialogue, to be more comfortable speaking about these topics. And I love the, the, how they frame this on their podcast and in their book. They approach these topics with candor and, and compassion, and they call readers in, which is an important distinction from, you know, versus calling readers out to confront hard realities and their own internalized biases while also sharing their prescriptive advice, encouragement, and a sense of community. And Real Friends Talk About Race is a must read that offers an insightful look into the complexities of interracial friendships and. I just thought this was a really interesting conversation that I wanted to share with you. And if you want to read the book, add it to your summer list. It's great. It came out in April. And it's not every book I read like with a highlighter, but I went through these in the chapters and wrote things in the margins and all the things because there were so many eye-opening moments for me, uh, as well as just points of action or accountability I want to like hold myself to a bit better. I mean, as a human that wants to be decent, but also as a person who genuinely cares that my audience feels included and welcome, I really appreciated this book. And I think you guys will, too. There's one more book that this summer I wanted to go over. There's so many good books from like my peers that I wanted to share with you guys that came out in, the, in recent months, um, which is Steph McNeil. She was on the podcast during Influence in the time of COVID. She writes about bloggers and influencers and very <laughs> the other day got like Tom Sandoval. I don't know. He was like lit up and was like so mad about this article she wrote for Glamour called Tom Sandoval ruined white nail polish for all of us. But I agree. And I it, like, yeah, he did. Um, but anyway, her book is about like the inside lives of influencers and she shadows a handful of influencers for like two years. And she um, followed around one particular, particular blogger. I know the best will be very interested in one Shannon Bird. So um, that episode will come out. I don't know. Uh, the next few weeks. I'm not sure when, but yeah, thanks for being willing to come to Beth's book club and we'll have all sorts of fun solo apps and pop culture things and deep dives coming in the pipeline as well. But we're so lucky today to have Hannah and Izu and I hope you guys enjoy the app. I feel like every 
video on my For You page, every mom I've talked to recently, everyone is recommending a product to me called the Hatch Rest. It was on my registry, but I got to try it early because they're a new advertiser. And I'm stoked to have a code for you guys because I know a lot of you are in my same life phase. And the new and improved second generation Hatch Rest makes sleep better and more magical for your entire family. The all-in-one Hatch Rest is a smart sleep device with a sound machine and a nightlight that grows with your kids. You know, I have started using it for tugboat. It's a sound machine that has continuous sounds for uninterrupted sleep, like white noise or ocean rain or heartbeat. My favorite part is this nightlight where it's just like a very subtle light glow that's not too oppressive, especially if you're waking up a lot in the middle of the night. And it's Wi-Fi controlled, which is nice because you can man it through the app. And it has a dimmable LED clock and quick access buttons. You can customize 11 sounds, 10 colors, and light intensity to create the perfect sleep environment for your child to fall asleep. And it has a sleep library where you can soothe your child to sleep with a library of expert-approved songs, stories, and more. And I think it's cool that they have this Time to Rise program. They can You can use colors that help kids learn when it's time to rise and shine or when they can play quietly in their room for a bit longer. And you can control it all from your phone, whether you want to turn up the white noise, turn down the light, change the color down the hall without waking anybody up. The rest has helped over 3 million babies and parents get restful sleep. It's no wonder that it's consistently a top baby registry item. And right now, Hatch is offering our listeners up to 15% off your purchase of a Hatch Rest and free shipping at hatch.co slash be there in five. So if you're ready for improved sleep for your kids and yourself, go to hatch.co slash be there in five to get up to 15% off and free shipping. That's hatch.co slash be there in five. This advertiser is saving my life right now and always, but Osea, their brand new Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's a high performance body moisturizer that absorbs instantly and delivers lasting hydration. Here's the key without stickiness or residue. You know, I'm a huge fan of their Andaria Algae body products, specifically their body oil that I put on damp out of the shower. And it is the only thing I've found in the market that like actually locks in moisture for me in a meaningful way. I have very dry skin. It's, this line of products is backed by some impressive clinical results, like an instant increase in skin hydration, invisibly firmer skin in just four hours. And their new Andaria Collagen Body Lotion has come into play because for my trip, I put some tanning drops in it. I put it all over my body. It's like being fully moisturized without having anything too thick or sticky on, which, you know, in hot weather, especially if you're in sandy conditions, like just is not the vibe. I love the texture and the feeling and what it does for my skin. And in general, I just love Osea as a brand and their mission of clean skin and body care products. And if you're looking for something lightweight and instant absorbing for lasting hydration, look no further. Osea's Andaria Collagen Body Lotion is your new favorite summer moisturizer. They're a very trusted skincare brand. They've been making seaweed-infused products that are safe for your skin and the planet for over 27 years. And my ad copy shares the point that it's great for active, busy adults with no time to spare. But I just want to be you know, candid about my current life phase. It's also great for sedentary adults with a lot of time on their hands who just are physically uncomfortable and don't want to be sticky. <laughs> so either way, <laughs> get hydrated, healthy skin for summer with clean vegan skincare and body care from Osea. And right now we have a special discount for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code BETHERE and 5 at oceamalibu.com. But that's not all. Get an extra 10% off plus free shipping when you have your favorite products delivered on repeat with their subscribe and save program. Head to oseamalibu.com and use code BETHERE and 5 All right, everybody. Today we're here to discuss an incredible book called Real Friends Talk About Race, which encourages people to embrace the discomfort of conversations about race and to approach the topic openly and honestly to strengthen our inter- racial relationships, whether it's with friends or colleagues or loved ones. And the authors, Izu and Hannah, are both friends and business partners. 
Izu Mukantabana identifies as Rwandan, Jewish, and a queer woman. She's an author, creative director, and social and art advocate. Hannah Summerhill is a white Jewish woman from Pennsylvania and who has had a long career in magazines, writing for publications like New York Mag and Elle, working in ad sales like at places like Vogue, Cosmo, and Women's Health. And through this book and their critically acclaimed Kinswoman podcast, of which I'm a huge fan, they hope to bridge the gap and build trust between people of color and white people by creating space for hard but necessary conversations. Izu and Hannah, welcome to the Be There in Five podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Kate, for that introduction. Happy yeah. to be here. Morning, but I wanted Very to cool. do justice to your incredible work. I first heard about Kinswomen, I think, in 2020. And I mean, you guys are doing such incredible work. And I loved this book. And how do you feel about having it like out in the world now? I'm really excited. I hope that it is used as a tool to initiate conversations or guide people or just like a support but definitely I personally hope that it um gives the permission to people to lean in discomfort in regards to these conversations because I think that we have been taught not to and to be perfect and to be um um like knowing everything and that's just not how things work so yeah, it feels good. It feels good that it's out there and people are going to like use it. Yeah, it's such a vulnerable feeling. Well, writing it was a very vulnerable ex- experience for both of us. But now that it's out and people can actually read it, it's very surreal. It feels very, I feel very exposed in some ways, which I'm sure a lot of artists or creatives do when they finally get their work out there. We've been working on this for about three years. We started Kinswomen in 2019. And through the past four years, we've just learned so much and we've put so much of that into the book. But like Izu said, I really hope this can be a guide for, um, well, first of all, we both wrote from the first person. So as a white woman, I'm really writing to white people. And I hope it can be a guide for white readers who have interracial friendships, romantic relationships, um, you know, colleagues of color, family members of color to really help build trust and start to see the layers of the unspoken racial dynamics that exist between us that we kind of know are there, but we're too awkward and it's too uncomfortable, like Izu said, to actually broach and talk about. Yeah. And I, I think what's so what was interesting reading the book is not only is it an educational resource, but I think in you both sharing your own stories and vulnerabilities from the first person, it's about friendship, but also you guys come across as friends. Um, and it feels like an exchange and it really helped i don't know when you ground the content concepts in personal experience but is also broader context i just think it was a really helpful holistic review and and i what i what i, I was going to ask like what made you decide to i love the style that you wrote it in you kind of because i listened at times and i read it at times i listened to the audiobook at times and you both speak from the first person and you alternate speaking on your own stories and your own point of view, but within the same chapter. How did you kind of assemble that structure? It's interesting because we get this com- this question a lot. And I think it ref- the fact that we have it, that this question comes back, I think reflects the fact that until now, when we have these conversations of uh, racism within, you know, intersectional relationship or like the inter uh interracial relationships people tend to think that the only way to speak of it uh in order to maintain the hope that things might get better is by speaking as a union and that's just not true and because 
the nature of the experience is not the same because the nature of uh, the level of like understanding the complexity of what comes about in these interactions is not the same. So it just felt so natural. And I think that, uh, and I'm so happy that you, you, you appreciate it because I think that for me, at least it was like, we're not coming from the same place, um, but we can find space to have a conversation and to like have a relationship but it really is about respecting the individuality, uh, the intellectual property, and also the experience of one another. There's one part where you talked about working as a unit and like the importance of, because you, you're friends and business partners, right? And I think, Hannah, you were talking about how a lot of your evolution you've learned from Izu and like the importance of attributing what intellectual property and insight has come from your friendship and not taking it as your own. I just, I think the way you guys also explore your own discomforts within your friendship while doing this project is really yeah. interesting and vulnerable and kind of speaks to you living by example yeah. of, of revisiting uncomfortable situations you've even experienced in your friendship. Absolutely. Yeah. We wanted to be super transparent. I, so for me as a white woman writing this book, the only thing I'm really an expert on is my own experience. And like you said, I've learned so much from Izu. We started having these conversations in my living room um, back in January 2019. And through that, they just grew and grew and grew outside my living room. Then we started the podcast. And now we have the opportunity to reach so many people with this book. But through our platform and our friendship, I've learned so much. I mean, it's been an incredible journey of awakening, unlearning, relearning, discomfort, um, feeling completely lost, feeling confident, feeling absolutely um, terrible, guilty. I mean, all the layers of shame that and guilt and um, denial that white supremacy really enforces and always has for the past 400 years really come to the surface, I think, when you're a white person aspiring towards allyship. Um, and I want to say, too, like, I am always going to be on this journey because there's no point of arrival for this. But Izu's taught me so much. And not only that, I think it's really important to, vers to diversify the voices that you hear from. I think sometimes white people were like, OK, we watched one documentary, we listened to one podcast episode or spoke to one person or read one book. But it's so important to really just diversify every, like every, um, like your, your education from every single mm -hmm. medium so that you can really start to have a holistic understanding. And for me, this journey really started as I share in the book, when I met my husband, who's black about 10 years ago. And that's when this, I, I say in the book, I definitely was not like hit with a stick by a, a woke anti-racism fairy. It, it was through seeing the the my own whiteness in relationship to somebody else that really started this journey for me. Of course, my you know my husband identifies as male and is a man. It's so different when we're having these conversations woman to woman. So I'm super grateful for Izu and for Kinswomen and all of our podcast guests who've just taught me so much about how white women and women of color can relate to each other better. And the way you met, it was kind of on the basis of Izu calling in, calling you and other people in the room in to participate, right? I, if I remember correctly, do you mind telling people how specifically you met? 
I think people are always interested in general how you make friends as an adult. I think you have a really beautiful origin story that was prophetic in how it manifested in your business partnership too. Yeah, of course. I mean, I uh, we were both members of a private social club and uh, I had seen, so they had different locations, which I was always used to going to the Soho one, but they were having an event about like like bridging the gap. Literally, that was the name of the, the event, like bridging the gap between white women and women of color. And I was like, oh my God, this, gonna, this is going to, because the, the club space is like predominantly, it was predominantly white. Uh, the dynamic within the space was very like weird and I had called I had sent emails I said like you guys this is going to be a shit show in the long run and like they were like thank you so much for this to tell for telling us but you know thank you so much but that's it and I was right at the end of the day they met their faith but I was like this is going to be so hard to witness but let, let me just go so I went and it was predominantly white and it was like kind of like a fishbowl. So people could come in and participate from the outside. They could join in. Um, and it was like this classic kind of setup where like you have minority women uh, coming in, like uh, gracefully sharing their painful experience. And then white women just sitting there being like, oh, wow this is so sad. And I, and I was like, this is so, I don't come from a culture that like, where you do that so for me i was already very uncomfortable with the whole like why are we sitting here and listening to someone like if i I felt uncomfortable with like that setup but also it was like there's no way i was going to do that feed into that like trauma porn for white women literally looking in and not doing anything and not participating not like talking about their own impact and their own like participating in this dynamic and so uh, instead of me going in and, and being like, oh, this is how I feel or what this is what I experienced, I wanted to call it out. I didn't call them in. I just called it out. I was like, this is so voyeuristic and it's creepy that like women are sitting inside talking about really painful things and y'all had the opportunity to participate in a conversation. You do not. And it just felt super voyeuristic. And from there, I think a lot of people in the room saw themselves in that comment and uh hannah later approached me and was like oh you know this spoke to me and she was like the only person that at least least had the guts to come and be like yeah i I saw that i hear that like this i totally am part of the problem and then that's it and that's how we kind of like met and i was like okay i'll give you i'll respect you for at least admitting that you're you know that you 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 know like you know i'm i'm one of them right (laughs) you know so that's 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 how we became friends and we met so hannah from that following that event you you wanted to start having more of these conversations with people in your immediate reference group community and you held like living room discussions yeah so well I'll just say it because we said it in the book that this event that we met at was at the wing. And after the event, there were so many, (laughs) just to call them out. Um, But just, so after this event, like Izu said, there, I was one of those quiet white women who was like, oh yeah, I I really came as a voyeur, not as a participant because, you know, I feel uncomfortable, but I'm not going to do that again. So there was a group of white women afterwards and that I kind of got together with. And I was like, let's keep doing this. Let's go to the wing and ask them to make this a series. After multiple attempts, 
at the like with trying to get the wing on board. And of course, they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll do it again. They just never scheduled anything. So I said, just come to my apartment. We'll do it there. And there was about um, six of us who came. Most of them were not from that night. And what I've realized is there's a lot of attrition when it comes to this stuff from white people. Like there's this sense of urgency in the beginning. We obviously saw that in 2020. And then it dies off. So only a few people came to that first meeting, including Izu. I had like a coworker come. I had a woman I'd met at my wedding venue come. I had a cousin come. Like anybody that I could get to come um, or beg to come came. But then that slowly grew. We would have the, the meetings every month and they were so transparent and raw and vulnerable. And I was like, we need to be having these as much as possible. So they ended up growing and growing and growing. And people would tell their friends until we were having these massive meetings that grew to hundreds of people over we we transferred to zoom over the pandemic but it really evolved into this beautiful thing and the hope then was that within these circles people whether they were white women or women of color could just be honest and vulnerable and be heard and listen and then i think for the white people we could take that information and bring it into our personal spaces, like our friendships, our workplaces, and just start to have a better, like start to really have a better awareness of our own personal responsibility and impact. Because it really starts on the interpersonal level. We obviously have these horrible systems of capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, ableism. But if we try to tackle those, as Izu has said, we're just going to get so overwhelmed, we're not going to do anything. But we all interact daily with people. And even if we're just interacting with white people, fellow white people, we can have a positive impact and we can start to push the needle and and move towards some semblance of justice and building trust. I think what you guys do a brilliant job of breaking down is, you know, high level, I understand like why people might have discomfort in having conversations about race. But, but what, I, what I hadn't really diagnosed is, oh, I think Izu called it the, how um, perfectionism and urgency is toxic in advocacy. And that was like a, oh my God, like as a public facing person even. Um, and Hannah, you talked about um, learning in public and I've kind of done the same, how there's this, not only this urgency that you want the the people you love and the people in your audience or whatever it is to feel seen and heard and represented and like you're acknowledging what's going on, but then also to be a leader and to speak about it uh, in a way that's effective and accurate and beyond that, to not position yourself as an expert. And I think that it really helped me understand the long haul of this and the importance of consistency and that you guys, close to the beginning, you do a beautiful job of breaking this down simply with four tenants. Do you mind elaborating on what you think are the four tenants of what you say is the most important part of interracial interpersonal uh, relationships is like building trust, right? Um, so yeah, in the book and really in um, the kinswomen framework overall, we have these four tenants for trust building really important to keep in mind. I think when you are a white person doing this work, because I think we try we we try to speed things up when in reality any relationship takes time. That's one of the first tenets. 
time, transparency, consistency, and communication are all required to build cross-racial trust. And I think when we're on this journey of allyship, we expect everyone, you know, people of color or marginalized communities to think that we're allies because, you know, we went to one march or we voted for Barack Obama, but it's really, it really requires so much more of a long haul, like you said, Kate. So I'll let Izu get into it a little bit more. It's the the simple idea that basically if you care about something, it has to be consistent and that it has to be based in you wanting it to do it because it matters, not just because it looks really good, but also because uh, it's for yourself. Like earlier you were saying how learning in public, I think that like learning in public is really great, but also choosing the public. Like you can choose who you decide to learn from because like for me, like I love hearing that an ally is like on their journey of learning or whatever, but you know, as you learn, you're going to make mistakes, for example. And I might, I don't want to see that. Like, as much as I want the best for you, I don't, I might not have the bandwidth to sustain, like, the fact that you're going through that, that learning process. And so I might not be the one, not that, like, all uh, BIPOC people are like, I don't want to witness this. But, like, sometimes, depending on the relationship that you have, someone doesn't want to see you, like, make mistakes. (laughs) Like, you might be more tolerant to see someone make mistakes because you love them and you're like, okay, bet, like, you're my friend, maybe I need a break or maybe, you know, but sometimes you're just like, I don't know you, you're a stranger. Why are you making this? Why are you doing this in front of everyone? Like sometimes you just have to choose your community with whom you grow together and make mistakes together and not have to do it in front of people that might be re-traumatized, like triggered or whatever. So that's really important. Like choosing your public, in regards to your evolution and like growth and whatever is absolutely important. And I think that like um, setting a frame around consistency and longevity is like super important because like literally these are issues that have been existing for a long time. America has been existing for hundreds, uh, a few hundreds of years and the system has been existing for a few hundreds of years. And so it's not because you decide to wake up one day and they're like, ah, I want to be a better person and I want to address this, that things are going to change overnight. And so it's going to take uh, a movement. It's going to take time. And I think that like, even when we learn, you know, hist- historical change or revolutions that have happened, we think that it happened overnight. In reality, it takes time. When we talk about, I don't know, things like, you know, desegregation in America, things like the whole boycott that happened around like the bus uh, where African-American people were like, we're not going in the bus anymore. We're taking a strike. We're not using them. And they literally financially choked the whole public transport. It didn't take a week. It took years for them to be like, okay, bet we're being bankrupt. We have to turn to the government to, to, to help us it's enough. Now we had to let these people take the bus and sit wherever they want because it's hurting us. And like, that is what the system is. If it sits in power for so long, it's not willing to give its power easily. So the same way the power is resistant to change, people have to be consistent with wanting to change the system. That's like super important. And I think that people have to understand that the conversation around allyship is not so much like I am never trying to humanize myself. I'm trying to 
like as I'm having a conversation about these things, I'm not trying to convince my humanity to white people. I'm trying, or to allies, I'm trying to convince the allies that they have to bring back the humanity and their perception of people that they are encountering. And so that shifts the the dogma or like the dynamic that we have about this allyship conversation, where it's just like, it's not about listening to people, but it's more like, internalizing how the system has affected you as a human being and how you've seen the world that you existed. And so it's an intro, intra kind of like directed change that has a, an effect on your environment. All of this is a long process and it takes like genuinely wanting to change and also letting go of the fact that you want to be seen as a good person. Because as much as you're going to make mistakes, you're going to make people angry that's part of the, the the process but in the long run you know it's meant to grow so that's that's like the reality of what it is to be an ally and people have to understand that like there's no answer there's no like magic you know wand or solution mm-hmm. it's literally an internal process that individuals have to um have to process an experience. And so, yes, it's the four tenets basically of wanting to be an ally in a genuine way. I think that reading through that, it was a look inward for me because, I mean, to be transparent about times I've had problematic conversations with friends, there was a point where I I didn't realize that I wanted to be told what to do. And that's not the point. The point is that I sincerely want to enrich my understanding. I want to work toward the equity of all the like all people in this world. I want to naturally care about and incorporate more diversified sources of information in my life. So it's more natural to my thought process and the way I work. And it's not about how it looks. It's about doing the work. And I think that people get myself included at one point, you get hung up on like you guys talk about in the book, like how you don't realize that you want to be perceived as a good person. But just like being a decent human is really the start of this and continuing to be and having a really natural interest. And at one point, I had a tough conversation with a friend because I was like, sometimes I feel confused when I should listen and learn and when I should be stepping up and not asking somebody else to perform this labor. Right. And they were kind of like, you're not a robot. There's not a manual. Like, be a human and apply nuance to every individual situation. And I was like, oh, duh. And 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 I felt like so ridiculous, embarrassed that I was like, I need someone to tell me what to do, especially a, a person of color. And that's a ridiculous way to think about it, because that's me coming from a place of wanting a gold star. Um, because mm-hmm. another thing that I wanted to touch on is you guys talked about um, a relatable experience for me, Hannah, was you saying, like, I would recognize things other people were saying is wrong, but I didn't have the vocabulary mm-hmm. to tell them why. Yeah. Was that a big realization yeah. in how you kind of take these conversations Absolutely. on? Absolutely. And I think a lot of well-meaning white women can att- like relate to this, is that we know when something's wrong and we might be able to recognize it or we get a gut feeling that it's wrong. Like if a coworker says something or if a friend says something or if we see something in the media, but we don't necessarily have the words to articulate why in the moment, it's not okay. And doing this work and doing the education that I think this work requires, that this work does require, 
helps fill in those gaps and make us a little bit more confident about articulating things in the moment because it's not enough to say, oh, that's really problematic or to later be like, that was really problematic. And I I used to do that. I used to see my white friends do that. And we kind of pat ourselves in the back for having that lens on things. But in the moment, what were we doing to interrupt it? Now, going back to the time that this takes, we're not saying that you have to have the tools in the moment as a white person to interrupt racism or bias whenever you see it. But with time, that does come. And it is, it really does take a lot of work because in the past, I, you know, I might be able to articulate it, but I'd say it in a way that was, uh, that made the people that I was trying to reach really defensive. So I remember at work, you know, I would have, I worked in corporate America in the magazine industry. And after a couple of years of being on my allyship journey, I would have no problem just like calling out my bosses, like calling out my coworkers. But that would really that that would really um, disengage them from the work because, of course, it puts them on the defensive. They think that you're calling them a racist. And I realized my approach was really coming from this place of superiority too, as a white person, that also has no place in anti-racism work. So usually, I think when we're feeling that feeling, we just it just means we have way more of our own work to do. So, Now I feel like I, and I'm not saying I'm perfect at all. I'm saying like, I feel better equipped sometimes and confident in calling things out in the moment and knowing how to do it so that the person that I'm talking to can actually listen and hear me and be called in. There are instances with Izu where like, we'll be on a Zoom sometimes and later she'll, she'll, you know, we'll talk and she'll be like, you know, I want to just kind of say something about what you said and you could have said it differently. And I've always appreciated those times. I haven't always agreed either about, you know, how she thinks I should have handled something, but constantly learning, like this is a constant learning process. And I think also what scares a lot of white people from saying or doing anything is the fact that A, we're socialized to be really nice and sweet and not rock the boat. And I think that just goes back to like this base fear of wanting to belong and being a be, having our survival be threatened by not being part of a group. But there's a huge distinction that Izu always talks about between discomfort and actual threat. And I think when you're feeling discomfort as a white person about talking about this, it is so different and the stakes are so much lo- lower from us than the actual threat that these systems um, pose to our friends and colleagues and, you know, people of color in our lives. That I thought that was such an important distinction that discomfort, you know, doesn't kill you and it's different from a threat. Why? I, I have to really ask myself, like, why am I incapable of holding tension? Who is and who is it well, benefiting? I, I can tell you, please. I can tell you why. The uh, first of all, we live in a society that like is constantly pushing us towards things that make us feel good. It's like do yoga so you can feel good, like go to this resort so you can feel good. Like everything that's promoted to our self growth is always meant to be is always meant to be about like do it so you can feel absolutely you can feel gooey and comfortable. Nothing is explaining to us that like even if we inherently know that in order to get to a place where we're, we're better, we have to go through the, the 
the tribulations of discomfort in order to get to a place where we feel better and we feel like we've grown or whatever. And so that's that's one. And I think specifically to white women, white supremacy has done this thing where it's like has uh um like just like it has uh ex- it gave like a re- like not a written down obviously but like an understanding of what it is to be a good like a, a proper man right like toxic masculinity and patriarchy like that's that comes from that right and then also it has a, this like code of conduct for women which are white women and so this code of conduct is being uh targeted in a way that kind of pertains to your attitude to the way you are supposed to behave and it predicts that you're actually supporting white supremacy and patriarchy and toxic masculinity not directly but it's kind of like by being this like super good woman sweet not you know making a ruckus and being like this like thing you are absolutely disconnected with being able to voice speak up even for yourself right forget about people of color like forget about being an ally to others it's like it taps it taps into like being present for yourself and so that's why i always talk about this inward thing where it's just like as a minority you experience society especially when you're in a predominantly white space you experience society in such an unfair way and so you are taught from the beginning that you need to speak up for yourself or you die literally like you you mentally spiritually and physically die and so you're pushed to be like speak up stand up for yourself like it's just like inherent you want to do it either someone told you or like you feel like you need to do it otherwise you suffocate but on the other hand you're so applauded by being a good woman by being a good woman which is like you know calm quiet you, you know you don't stand up you don't make a fuss or whatever that like it plays against you and for others so that's why you have like these historical things. Yes, last night I felt I fell in a hole. Well, I was just like, uh, you know, the woman that like um, uh, that said that Emmett Till had whistled at her and got him killed, died, and like. 88 and had a whole life i don't believe that she had a good life it's not possible like i have a hard she had a life but i don't i i have a hard time believe that this woman like had a perfectly good life right but she had a life she had a longer life than emma Till. and so i was so it was fascinating to me to fall back into that space because i was just like what happened like has he has she ever spoken has her family spoken and this is the thing too it's like okay fine this woman comes from a different era and she's like doubling down on her bullshit but what about her kids? What about her grandkids? What about people we, our generation? How come they have not spoken up once? And that's because like, they literally are feeding and they could, someone from that family could come to me and be like, I'm not my grandmother or I'm not my great grandmother or I'm not whatever. But if you've never spoken up about what your grandmother did or even had like, not not coming out and be like, I'm so sorry, like that's not even, but even the intellectual like public show of like that was crazy and like i am deconstructing it and like just with like a bit of physical witness of i don't agree to this this is crazy right nothing nothing she did this like unpublished memoir where she was like i'm a victim right and it's like wow incredible and so this woman really existed in that dynamic so even with with allyship and like white women specifically it's like it doesn't play well for yourselves 
let alone for other people around you because you can't stand up you can't like you're just ingrained in this thing where it's just like in order to be a good woman in order to be successful in order to like play in the thing you have to be in place and like we see it in modern times when you're like how is it that predominantly white children are being like you know in schools there's school shootings and these schools where everyone's white and it's like how are these white women not like marching down the street why are you killing our children why are you killing our babies like that's wild to me you know and so like if you can't if you can't show up for your own or even for your babies or for yourself how that's why you can't be you can't be an ally unless you have tapped into your own existence and your own dynamics that how do you show up for yourself do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it's like that's that's the dynamic that you go in but we have full responsibility in uh dissecting that especially when you say you want to be an ally especially Mm -hmm. when you say you want and so that's why i'm not in for the whole like you're saving me or you're supporting me you're not supporting me like support yourself (laughs) eventually you will support me but support yourself because that will that would trickle down that would have a ripple effect on your environment but it's absolutely for you first like you know so and I don't think we speak of this usually like this. We usually speak of like, I'm supporting that and I'm being an ally. This <laughs> is like, but you're really being showing up for yourself because this whole system has fucked us all up. And, 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 and we have to be, you know, looking at it that way instead of uh, patronizing people and making them feel like they're like some like humanitarian, like, like case or whatever, you know? So, so yeah, that's my my analysis of it all. So many great points made. And I think the recovering nice white girl of it all, like even um, not moralizing or like allowing myself to be angry and not um, having that response to other people. Like you're so angry. Like in in my DMS all day when I'm angry about stuff, everyone's like, people love to police anger in a way that I as a white woman have not experienced for very much of my life. But as I've gotten angrier, as I, you know, the more you educate yourself, the more you understand it. It's literally impossible to not be angry. I think for many, especially women that didn't have a broader understanding before, I've been operating at like a low simmer since 2016. It's like, it's not a choice. And you understand that like you were policing people as if like they're choosing to walk around the world bitter and angry. But like when you understand the injustices on a deeper level, you wouldn't be human if it didn't infuriate you. And it's a, I think there's something important to embracing that. And I don't know, I, I've just been trying to, I've just had like a struggle the past few years with uh, reframing anger and um, allowing it to exist. And I think that one of the most fascinating parts about embarking upon an anti-racist journey is like, yeah, I have a lot to learn, but holy shit, I have a lot to unlearn. I, I You have to strip back like everything you were conditioned to believe. And um, Hannah, you talked about this in the context of U.S. history, which I relate to, like, why were we learning about the atrocities of the Holocaust, but not our own country's atrocities in more detail? You know, why did we act like after 1964, racism was over? I mean, I grew up in central Virginia. Mm-hmm. It, it, and I looking back, I feel robbed of, of truth. And I think there's a lot of anger in that, too, that you don't need to necessarily project onto other people that you have to work through. But anyway, did you grow up having like a pretty U.S.-centric propaganda historical education? Absolutely. Of course, I wouldn't have seen it that way at the time. But I think about about that all the time. 
now that I'm re-educating myself and relearning and unlearning. And it's so important that we recognize how what we've been taught really shapes the way that we view social hierarchies, racial hierarchies today. Like I was having a conversation with a woman the other day who we were, we were in, um, at my local city council's office and we had a meeting with, I'll, I'll call them the opposition, people who are vehemently against, um, using terms, even like white supremacy against diversity, equity, inclusion in schools. Um, we had a, we had a meeting with them and, one of them trotted out a very well-worn um, stereotype, harmful stereotype about black on black crime in Chicago. And through my own relearning, uh, there's a great book called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein that I talk about in the book. He writes about how the redlining in Chicago, which is the refusal to um, let black people live in certain neighborhoods therefore driving rents up really high in the places that they are allowed to live results in overpopulation in certain parts of Chicago where the schools were overcrowded, need to be split into two half days. You had kids who had nowhere to go for half the day, resulting in, you know, young children with nothing to do, whose parents are working, you know, getting into trouble, and then that, you know, perpetuating crime. Those are all white implemented policies that are creating black stereotypes that then we point to as somehow being inherently a characteristic of black people as a way to further prove racial hierarchies and our own internalized racism. We could easily knock those out of our consciousness if we actually learned the truth about our history, if we learned about redlining, if we learned about um these real estate covenants, if we learned about how um, communities of color were just, were literally decimated to make way for highways. You know, the highways that we drive upon, uh, you know, demolished neighborhoods that were vibrant and displaced communities. And nothing is neutral. That's what you realize when you when you start re-educating yourself. Um, and that's been invaluable. But as adults, I can say, oh my gosh, like, I never had a black teacher like all through growing up through college. I never had a black teacher, but I'm 36 now and it's my responsibility. I have access to so much information that it is 100% on me to learn those things. And the more you you realize, the more it just kind of all starts to fall apart. But you can start to see these these dynamics a lot more clearly, clearly see how they've impacted like your own thinking. And then you can use that information to, you know, make up for, you know, harm that's been caused in the past. And I think when I was reading the book, I was thinking about how like people spend so much effing time on like self-help, on like individualistic improvement efforts, yet can't make time to better understand people that aren't mm -hmm. themselves. And how that would enrich their life and help themselves ultimately. In recent years, kind of tried to reframe it in terms of like, it is a form of self-help to like better understand other communities to deconstruct history. I've deconstructed a lot about like evangelical stuff in my past. And um, I think the most self-improvement selfishly I've ever found is through like deconstructing these systems that take time to to work through. And 
yet at face value, they seem so complicated. People don't even want to bother. And Easy, you made a really interesting point about consistency. You're like, I know white people can basically get shit done. Look at veganism. <laughs> but interestingly enough, that that was so funny. Writing that part of vegan, obviously I'm making fun of it. Like I'm making I'm making a joke, but kind of serious. Yeah. Kind of serious too, because I have been a vegetarian for a long time and like I was vegan for a while as well before. And then um writing that it kind of was flagged immediately like it was kind of like ah are you sure you want to keep that in and i was like absolutely want to keep it in because like there's this like morality like moral you know like sometimes when you're part of certain groups you feel like these people have tapped into this like holy holiness of like we're so much better than everyone (laughs) and it's just like well it's so good to care about things but if you're not intersecting things it doesn't make sense you know and so even recently where so i we put it in as an expert expert excerpt i never know how to say that word whatever we put that little piece yeah whatever and then um the editor was like, I, I don't know about this. I know what you mean, haha. But it's like, so if you know what, why are you so uncomfortable with that? Because like, it's such a, it's such a perfect place to be. While we've also been so, it's been clearly proven that like these like vegan spaces have been colonized and have been like, it, it, there has been like uh, gentrified and whitewashed. Right. And so it's like clearly if you are able to do that, that means you have disconnected the the native people that have been doing this for years and you have removed the humanness of this thing to appropriate it to yourself. So there is racism and play in this like culture that's been born in the West with veganism. And so why are you so uncomfortable with me connecting racism with veganism and it's just like because vegans feel like they're so good to people so so perfect beings and they're connected to to the earth and to the animals and to our future planet but it's just like that doesn't mean shit if you can't be good people if you can't intersect that with human beings because at the end of the day we're living together as well right and so i think that like that's a I call that like whenever you're having a conversation, there's levels to it. You can talk about like racism is bad, this is bad, this is good, and then like it's like oh well, you know that example is like a uh, like a head meaning that means that it's racism, and then there's a third level where you like take things and you like intrinsically connect them to very problematic thoughts that people have not connected and they feel so uncomfortable because they're like i thought i was in a safe space and no one could touch me and she's like i can't we could definitely look at vegan behavior and look at how weird it gets um especially of how whitewash it's become and how disconnected and not intersected it is and and so yeah, I know people can do it. It's just like they don't care, and because like racism or anti-Semitism requires you to connect directly to your impact, uh, and to have a response, right? Like it's so good to work for the planet. It's so good to work with the animals for you know greater good of our human 
you know, outside of humans. But animals don't speak to you back. <laughs> they don't, they're not like, <laughs> don't eat avocado because, you know, avocados are not going to have a conversation with you. And just like, you're fucking us up right now, <laughs> you know? Like, don't do that because, like, now there's too much avocado and it's hurting the environment, whatever. Like, that conversation needs to happen instantly. It has to be a study. People have to connect the dots. Da, 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 da. Where you haven't, when you have a human based conversation, they have direct direct input <laughs> direct interaction and so that makes people feel really awkward because they're like damn i can't just be a good i can't just be good and no one is going to say nothing people are going to say something either good either bad but i think that's the, the uneasiness of connecting into things where we felt like ah this is a sweet spot like no one can touch me <laughs> so yeah but also what you say in the book which i love and i feel like it really resonates with people is that when white people are like, but what do I do? How do I be an ally? You're like, how do you do anything else? Like, look at vegans. You like decide what to eat. You decide where to shop. You decide what which businesses to support. Like when we care about something, we actually do know what to do. It's just we feel this disempowered or we feel uncomfortable or, you know, we give excuses as to why we can't apply that same framework to racial justice. So I love that example. I love the way you like tie that together in the book. Yeah, that that was a light bulb for me as well. Like it was it was a perfect parallel of how small habit changes at the individual level actually can have a macro impact when people really care about stuff and if you're if you're going to really care about stuff, caring about other people's well-being and safety seems pretty top of the list. And what you were saying Izu kind of reminds me of the issue with like, you know, how hard anti-choice people defend like a fetus that can't speak for itself. Anyways, that's like a whole other thing to unpack. But I, it is yeah. fascinating how some groups will really latch on to causes where the, you know, nucleus of that cause cannot speak for itself or respond. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. And just, that's just like kind of like people that like donate money to these like orphanages or organization far, far away. But then don't look at like, what can I do in my community? Because in your community, it implies that you have to put yourself in the equation. You have to have conversation. It's it's so much more self-involved than just like throwing money somewhere where you're just like, you can check them. It's always like, do I look good? Right. And like, you absolutely have to kill this instant want to like, do I look good? Do I seem like perfect or whatever? It's just like, well, no one cares because people are actually trying to change things for things to be better. No one really cares about you being a good person, like seeming or looking like a good person. People care that you're actually doing things. And and we instinctively know. Like, it's something that, like, most people, I think, can tell when you're just, like, being super performative. So a lot of people don't say anything because like if i see a stranger and they're being super performative i'm not gonna be like you're being super performative i don't care (laughs) like unless we're having a conversation and you're asking for my opinion or that we have to work together i'm gonna have to say something otherwise it's like i'll let you be and then someone is gonna have to tell you and you are gonna have to live with that reality but yeah it's 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 very simple very simple things and human beings are so weird like some people will be like, I, you know, care about animal rights and blah, blah, blah. But then, like, I had this conversation about someone that was just like, oh, my God, I care about what's happening in Ukraine. And, like, it's so horrible what's happening in Ukraine. And I was like, damn, like, yeah, I'm, I'm sad for that, too. You know, like, it's the war. So I understand. But the 
But then that of alone, I was like, um, there's such an interesting dynamic happening there. You know, there's like these like all African kids that were stuck, students that were stuck in Ukraine, not being let out. And so if we're going to have a conversation, I feel like we should have a conversation. Like, let's let's dive in because I'm coming from a different perspective. And like, you know, you have African kids that are paying to go to school because they have good schools in Ukraine. And so and you have Moroccan kids, and like North Africans that come there and they're stuck and then they're forced to join the army and to fight for an army that they don't belong. And that's also part of the conversation. So, like, can we have the full scope of things like with, without ignoring or without uh not caring about people suffering obviously right i think people are so not they're not willing to create like multiple truths mm. uh because they then don't have a sticker it's like oh i'm from this so i look good or from that so i look bad and it's just like reality of things is like mm, where most of the time the reality sits in the middle and that you have to uh you have to learn how to speak uh and articulate those layers and a lot of people struggle with that or feel uncomfortable with that or just don't know. And that's, that's a journey. I, in the book you um, bring, and this is like a pop culture podcast and I, it's kind of similar to that. You bring up how um, in passing, I forget who who wrote this part, but it, it was, you're saying like in passing these pop cultural moments that touch on race will happen. And like the real housewives, for example, like, there's an acknowledgement, but there's no uh, further discovery or unpacking of the many, many layers of the conversation. So it's kind of, it's almost counterproductive in that, yes, we've acknowledged that this issue is here, but in not taking any time to explore it, what are we doing? I'm always grateful to be traveling with base luggage, but now more than ever, I mean, this brand is an overpacker's dream. When I'm going somewhere within the temperatures, like vaguely, somewhere between 65 and 85 degrees. I have no idea if it's freezing or if I'm going to be hot. I did pack my entire wardrobe to go to this wedding this week. And fortunately, with base, there's room for everything. Whether you need 15 bathing suits or several pairs of shoes, you can bring them all. The Weekender bag, which they're well known for, and one Raquel was seen <laughs> leaving Tom Sandoval's with, it has this bottom compartment that holds like huge pairs of lug soles in the winter. I You can fit endless sandals in it. It is the most spacious bag that you can carry on. And it has one of those things where you can put it on the handle of your rollerboard, a trolley sleeve. And um, it makes a huge difference for this gal, especially because I can't carry heavy things right now. And they've thought of everything, 360 degree gliding wheels. My favorite part, I know this sounds silly, but a cushioned handle. It's like a memory foam handle. So when you're dragging your bag, it feels nice. There's a built-in weight indicator, which is huge. Washable bags for dirty clothes, countless interior pockets. And that's just an example of what comes with their like rollerboard suitcase. I've been using the diaper bag lately, even though I don't have diapers or a baby yet, but it has so many compartments. It's just too exciting. The videos of people exploring the diaper bag online are so satisfying because there's like a place for wipes. There's a pad you pull out so you can change your kit on it in public. I mean, they've thought of everything and every piece is made to look better with miles. So you don't have to worry about it in cargo or overhead and bases over 30,000 five-star reviews. Also, if you've been seeing their ads for the berry color on TikTok, it's super cute. Right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com slash be there in five. Go to basetravel.com slash be there in five for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash be there in five. I know a lot of you guys listen to this while doing things around the house. And if you're thinking to yourself, what's for dinner? And that question stresses you out. A, I agree. But B, listen up. Hungry Root will fill your fridge with healthy food and simple recipes 
so you can fill your schedule with stuff you enjoy doing more. Greg and I have been really appreciating this right now because we hate wasting food. We're really bad at meal planning and we tend to like over grocery shop and then not know how to use all the ingredients. And it's just it's a whole thing. But Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high quality food delivered to your door. They have healthy groceries and simple recipes all in one place. And as I like to clarify for you, this is different than a normal meal kits that come with parsed out ingredients. These are full sized ingredients that you can use on their own snack, you know, put into other stuff or you can use them for the recipes they provide. Um, you guys have been DMing me being like, oh, this is kind of the the perfect marriage of wanting groceries delivered, but also meal planning, but not wanting to be completely stuck making specific recipes if you don't have time that night, if that's not what you're in the mood for, et cetera. And like, I agree. I This is like having somebody else meal plan for you, essentially. And they have really good food and brands that I haven't tried before and really delicious snacks. And you can get lunch, dinner, breakfast, snacks, desserts. You take this really lengthy quiz. It's helpful for people like me that have food allergies, but it also is like, do you want to use a blender? Do you want to use a food processor? Do you have a, a toaster oven? And, you know, so you can actually eliminate the appliances you don't have or don't feel like using from your planned recipes. This past week, they sent us like healthy cheese balls. And my God, if I'm not ordering those again with lightning speed. And since I have the palate of a toddler right now, I've been filtering by kid-friendly recipes. And my God, if they didn't alert me to the joys of putting apple in a grilled cheese would have never thought of it. I'm new to apples. I'm not reacting to them as much anymore. But between that and the grass-fed sloppy joes, or as I've told you, we love this like sous vide lemon pepper, half chicken, make it with sprouts or asparagus. I don't know. We've just been eating well over here and I wanted to tell you guys about it and give you a code just in case you want to spend less time shopping and cooking and more time enjoying healthy food that you'll actually love with Hungry Root. And right now, Hungry Root is offering Be There and Five listeners 30% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash be there in five to get 30% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash be there in five. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. Like the Real Housewives, for example, there's an acknowledgement, but there's no uh, further discovery or unpacking of the many, many layers of the conversation. So it's kind of, it's almost counterproductive in that, yes, we've acknowledged that this issue is here, but in not taking any time to explore it, what are we doing? Yeah, I'm so, like, because we're on our phone so much and because we consume so much media, I feel like as millennials, this, there, it, it's so fascinating to dissect things from that angle, which we do in the book. But, like, I was just having this conversation with my husband last night. We were watching Succession, and I know everyone loves Succession, but I've said, like, I'll say to him, this show is so fucking white. Like, it's four seasons in. They have they introduce new characters regularly. They're always white. If any person of color is in the shot, they're usually, you know, pouring uh, somebody's glass of water and they have no lines. And my husband Dave will say, "Well, yeah, but that's realistic." And I get that. That is realistic. At the same time, this is not reality. This is a television show where actors are getting paid, and if you're just consistently paying white people, and putting the wealth back into the same communities that have always had it. Like, I personally have a, a huge issue with that. So we, like, we, of course, don't always agree on everything, but it's really interesting, like, to just see the way that these dynamics play out and how media kind of tries to respond to this, quote-unquote, racial reckoning that really wasn't. Um, because now there's people, like, it, I'm watching Succession. I'm like, well, they just don't care anymore because there's no – 
like we said, there was a sense of urgency a couple years ago. And now people just are like shoulder shrug. We're moving on. We check some boxes. We have some things in the pipeline. Um, and that's it. But yeah, it's it's frustrating to be a viewer and a social media consumer and just see, you know, see these things and then see them just not get talked about. And also, I think that like uh, the notion of imagining and rewriting is something that's that's only um, possible for white people. As soon as we write things, or we imagine things um, through the, spe- the perspective of you know being adding BIPOC, then it's always an issue. Like it, we've seen it, we've seen it with like the Hunger Games when the writer had not explained, had not said that the little girl. I think it's the one, the first Hunger Games, it's the only one I saw. I saw. Uh, she never wrote the the race of the child. Uh, she just wrote it was a little girl. And so when um, they casted a black little girl, everyone was so angry. Like everyone that watched that movie was like, "Oh my god! Like this is stupid. This is horrible. Like why is she black?" And she's like, "But why is why is imagination and rewriting only allocated to white people or to whiteness?" But is is very feel, makes people feel uh, uncomfortable when we want to put BIPOC or like uh, the movie where they put uh, the queen um, as like a black character. Egypt is suing the movie. The a lawyer in Egypt is suing uh, because that's not the color. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> what, what the movie that? is that? The the new movie of. Um, What's the what's the queen? Uh, the famous queen in Egypt, uh, Cleopatra. Cleopatra. So it's a new movie with Cleopatra. A, a new movie with Cleopatra. It's like her. She. It's a movie about her, and they casted a black actress. And um, there's been this whole ruckus online where like Egyptians are really angry. Uh, I think it's all Egyptians. I think most Egyptians don't care. But a lot of people, the the loud voices are really angry, and and they're like, and and this conversation has been happening also in France, where people are just like, well, you know, technically she could be black, but not really because yada yada yada, and because she was Greek descent, so maybe probably she's mixed, and that and she's like, Ugh. how many movies have we not seen where we're casting straight up white people for 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 things where we so for sure know it's not a white person, and no one budged, <laughs> no one from a country like got angry. And then, like, uh, there's a lawyer in Egypt that's suing um, the movie for portraying the Cleopatra as black, and that to me is fascinating in so many levels because it's showing the 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 likeness of whiteness. Yeah, where like we have casted Cleopatra in multiple movies where she was completely white, no one budged. Like, if we're going to talk about, like, the accuracy of, like, the historical, da 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 like, then why not sue when she's totally white? Because she couldn't have been white. How, how the hell is a white woman in North Africa? That's just not possible, right? And it's more plausible that she's black than she's, like, completely white, blonde, with blue eyes. Like, that just doesn't make sense. And so I find that really interesting, and it just shows to how the lens in which we uh, have been existing and not just like in the west not just in america but in not america canada france like basically european countries or whatever the west has been functioning on this like one lens where like we're still fighting to have inclusivity but 
it's just like even imagination is just not possible like we can't be right because people will get angry and that's i find that so funny like i laughed when i heard that the lawyer was suing it's like what are you literally spend your time on like seriously (laughs) wild well i thought it was lunar so yeah yeah sometimes it's just funny to see things play out it just and it's so it's so it's such a it's such a how do you say it? it's a revealing moment where it's just like an, a North African person is like, no, nah, no, nah, she was definitely not black. And and it reveals the dynamics that happen even within the country, which is like, it's very, anti- like there's a lot of anti-blackness that exists in the country. So it's, you know, but yeah, here we are. But I think those, those <laughs> pop culture moments, like teach me something about like, I, I, I had a, a couple years ago, I had, when Indian matchmaking first came out, I had a Parna on the podcast who was on the show and that show, it completely revealed um, all of these issues of colorism within Southeast Asia that I wasn't even aware of those dynamics that exist. And it's interesting when pop culture can kind of be revealing about how these dynamics exist in other places that we maybe aren't even really thinking about. Um, And it's always interesting to, dig deeper. I was, I was fascinated that this latest season of love is blind season four, there were several interracial couples and they never broached the topic of race. And I was disappointed because I felt like it was a lost opportunity to have this massive platform, to have these more nuanced conversations or at least scratch the surface because last season, and I don't know if you're a watcher, I appreciated how For instance, Nancy and Bartise had this really vulnerable, very long for reality TV scene conversation about abortion. And I applauded, and a lot of other people did, applauded Netflix for leaving that in. But in this latest season, do do, do you watch it? Okay. We had Chelsea and Kwame. uh, We never saw them have a conversation about what it means to be in an interracial marriage or a romantic partnership. But I felt like that tension, there was so much unsaid that wasn't being brought into the show. And then same with, who else did we have? I'm kind of forgetting at this point. <laughs> Already, like, I've moved on. I know. <laughs> but I remember. cycles too fast. I can't remember literally <laughs> yeah. anybody else's name. Right. All I remember is them singing, I, I hope you dance. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I was like, wow, they spent money for the rights right. to that song. Right. Oh, oh, Bliss, Bliss, Bliss yeah. and, and Zach. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just a missed opportunity to have those conversations. And that's something like we don't shy away from. We definitely don't shy away from in the book um, because a lot of us have these have interracial friendships, but there's so much that doesn't go that that never gets said. And I'm just like. I've learned that for those relationships to be as meaningful and deep and beautiful and for both person to be their fullest self, like we need to lean into the discomfort of having those. So I felt it was a missed opportunity on Netflix's part, but also probably emblematic of what is actually happening in interracial relationships today, because I know there are plenty of couples that never have those conversations. But I don't, I don't, for me, it's like, it's not shocking. It's like, I think it's the whole soft propaganda around like inter interracial right. coupling, where it's like it's supposed to be the poster child of like a post racial era, 
And so it's become, uh, it started like back in the 90s, I'd say, where you had like a bunch of like a black baby, a white baby coming together and like these like super famous, like a few years ago, two white baby and black baby coming together and being best friends. And it's like, obviously we're human beings. We're going to connect. Like people are going to like have sex with each other. People are going to have children with each other, but it's definitely not a statement on their relationship to race. Uh, to each other, their own relationship to race and to their own position with it, to the interaction between the two and to said environment. And I think that like, specifically with couples, like it has been told to us that the only issue um, that exists is from the outside world. Like the outside world is against you. Like they don't want you to be together. Mm. But the reality is like, that's not necessarily the whole truth. Like family can be, difficult to handle but also you can come with your you it's not come you can you will come with your own baggage and that baggage is going to play out in your interaction and to think that everything is good if you've never had a conversation is that that's how you end up being in a in a divorce within a few years because people evolve and at some point they're like well you know i feel frustrated now i've come into myself i I want to speak up i want to like dive in and then you dive in and you realize your white partner has never wanted to actually fucking get into that conversation and then you realize where they sit and then you have divorce literally i know people that have divorced during like the whole like racial uh uh unrest in in the in the u.s like people around the world interracial couples were having conversations and literally divorced full families and so it's like you like and that's that's because we are have been told that like if we couple with like an you know interracially couple you know we're proving the world that we're making a difference and it's like this outward outward performance of like you know i'm making the world a better place because i'm making mixed babies and it's just like that's not that's not true you can have fully white babies and still be part of like some of like the the best impact in the world like you can have a fully white family and be like an amazing advocate an amazing ally like it's all about your relationship to to the issue and how you've dealt with it or you can be in a super toxic relationship with like uh in an interracial relationship and to be in super toxic dynamic um and never having told some people will stay forever together and never talk about it. And some people will blow up one day and be like, you know what, actually fuck this. Like, I don't like this because we, or talk about it and it works out. It all depends the relationship that they have, obviously. But like, that's the dynamic that we've, we're in, you know? And I have come to like really double down on this thought since I've been in Europe. And like in France, they don't have the same PC level as like, like in America. Like Amer- white Americans have been drilled in like understanding we're having more conversation in the u.s than like france for example at that level in that space and so like white americans have more of like understanding of like certain things that are just like oh that's weird don't say that or you know what i mean like they're better they're they're they understand better but france they they literally have no they say things and you're just like damn (laughs) okay this is where we are Mm -hmm. and so with my partner uh, we've been saying like oh, people are very intrusive as soon as we say they ask oh do you guys want children it's like yes we want children oh yeah you want ch- children like who's gonna carry because we're two women it's like oh, we talk about it i mean i don't feel uncomfortable but i feel like it's very intrusive i'd never ask someone no. that but whatever me neither <laughs> it's weird <laughs> 
And so then it's like, oh yeah, who's gonna care? We, we tell them like it's uh, her and I. Okay, cool. Uh, how, oh, so how are you going to go about the donor? And it's like, oh, we don't we don't know the donor yet, but we we know we want a black child. Like we want a black donor. And in France, <laughs> it's been these weird ass conversation where people are like, you want a black child? And she's like, she's black. I'm black. Yes, we want a black baby. And they're like, but you have the choice. You can choose anything. It's like, what do you think this is? Like fucking McDonald's? I I, yes. I, I choose a happy meal. And then so and, and I'm like, what are you guys talking about? Like, these are real people that we're putting out in this world. Like, if and, and they're like, no, but you can choose, you know, an Asian donor. Or like, and I was like, but okay, I have a I have an Asian donor and then I have a have black baby and have Asian baby. And then what do I do? What do I teach this child? I, I don't live in Japan. I don't live in China. I don't live in, in Vietnam. Like, what do I tell this child with like this whole DNA that comes from the culture that I know nothing about? Like, that doesn't even make sense. So, and this is literally comes from this idea that like, if you mix, <laughs> then things are better. Uh. And that doesn't necessarily come, this is not necessarily true you have the responsibility to have the conversation, to understand the impact that you have, to have, you're raising these kids and they're going to go out there and they're having an identity and like, you're not feeding all parts of their identity. So no, I'm not gonna have a Japanese, like have Japanese, have black child because I don't know anything about Japan. I'm not Japanese. I can't feed this child. And it's not like they have a Japanese father where they're gonna go in their family and whatever. It's literally two black women. That makes no sense. And so this, and then, and where you see it's racist, it's when they say, why a black child and not from where? Right? Mm. Because if it's from where, then you understand that blackness is not a monolith and you have humanized black people and you see them differently and you're like okay from from where like senegal african-american like you know rwanda or where from, from where even south america no that's not the question the question is like why a black child and that's a a, right. a revealing of anti-blackness mm. and then people can't even connect the dots and it's just like that's racist <laughs> you know and and you have to dissect yeah. it for them to understand. I am still hung up on the intrusiveness of the line mm. of questioning. But then yeah, it's like, yeah. then you're forced to analyze and un- dissect that to be like, think about what you're really asking. And it's yeah. the way these things manifest in like every life phase, every milestone is quite fascinating. That's an angle I've not thought about before. Of course. I mean, I didn't think about yeah. it either until I'm in these conversations. I feel like from like the white perspective too, like when you talk about um, like easy, you kind of alluded to this, like adopting children or like doing humanitarian work or like being a white parent of um, a child that's not your own race is very much like fetishized. And people will always say to me, like, until I told them to stop, like, oh, you know, you're going to have mixed babies and mixed babies are the cutest. And there's just like this fetishization of well, like from the white side of um, having mixed children, and then like from Izu's side, like she's being asked that because people associate, you know, people have this higher this racial hierarchy, and it is it is so uncomfortable to feel like we live in this society where um, mixed babies are fetishized, but at the same time, like 
they are like children of color are seen as threats and they're hypersexualized way earlier. So there was this, there was something I wrote in our book that I got from um, uh, a Zoom call that I that I did with Layla Saad, who wrote Me and White Supremacy, but she talked about this pet mm. to threat phenomenon for children of color. And it's like, how dare you say that, you know, mixed babies are the cutest when you're still, when when they're cute and innocent for how long in our society, you know? So we're just not looking at things through that lens and and we need to be like, those are the conversations we need to be having. But yeah, yeah before, like, before Izu and I even are having kids, like people are, it's like these, these things that people are trying to racialize and you know, the yeah, the problems have already started. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, I think that like white people or people in general in, in their struggle to feel like things are getting better, they are trying to hang on things that are super superficial. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, they'll go to, but you know, there's like really successful black people. There's like really successful people of color. Like, uh, you know, things have changed and they they will pull like uh, Jay-Z and Oprah and like, and she's like, okay, that's great. Jay-Z but that doesn't mean anything, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's like, but the, is there really racism? Oprah exists. And it's like, what? No, yeah. Oprah serious so many, sh- so much shit and she still does. And, and and even if she has all the money in the like she can have all the money in the world doesn't absorb her color skin and it's it's like children are also another uh manifestation of what people want to use Mm -hmm. as like a physical proof that we've uh gone into a post-racial but like in reality if you look at the history throughout uh, people enslaved, uh, unfortunately, were having mixed babies, and that and that was from their enslaver. So mm-hmm. that wasn't a show, a proof of things changing at all, because <laughs> right. they were enslaved. Right. So no, it's, it has never and will never be uh, a, a manifestation of a post-racial um, uh, society. It, it, but what is, is the fact that people are going to start looking at like, uh, they are participating, uh, in that dynamic. What I appreciate, read the way you guys kind of wrap up the book, you know, don't want to spoil anything, but wrote down that easy said this, the process for anyone who wants to be an ally any community is learning about the issues with lots of reading and documentary watching, then turning to the community that's closest as an anchor in your journey. And then I like how you capture the nuance of how every situation might be a little different, but that's like anything else in life. Like you wouldn't apply a one size fits all approach to all of your relationships and how allyship is about having a good relationship with your friends. The love and labor that we pour in a friend is what genuine allyship feels like um, to hear and make space for those that you care about. So there's a harmonious and respectful interaction. And I just I appreciated the way the book kind of wraps up with you know, it starts with awareness, but then the analysis, accountability, the action piece, like just kind of bringing it full circle and ultimately being like what ma- these small interactions we have day in and day out matter, whether it's a parasocial relationship you have to a public figure and you're ha- having discussions with the people in your life about how they responded to something that can be productive or just the ways you kind of support people along the way, like never getting de-energized that these small things don't matter. Mm. I think that like the book, uh, at least for me, it's a it's a manifestation of the hope that I that I still hold, 
in the midst of the anger and rage that I feel in regards to everything that happened, right? And these two things can exist at the same time. I can be really angry and, and really like, I can feel real rage in regards to like what happens. But at the same time, I, I have space for, for hope for like the, those that really want to be um, impactful allies uh, within these spaces. And I think that uh, people have to really understand that we are human beings and things are complex but it ultimately has to come from being genuine really being genuine and also um kind and yeah yeah i think izu writes about how allyship is really just like friendship um like you said kate we make it feel really complicated and obviously like there's a lot of baggage behind it, but it's really about just, you know, showing up and and being there. And I hope what people get from this book, at least the white people that I feel like I was writing to, is not to feel guilty or ashamed, but really just to feel empowered and know that we can do a lot with our own individual impact. And I am super vulnerable in the book about all of my mistakes in the hopes that readers can learn from them and learn a little bit faster than I did. And I hope this book just helps improve and create equity in workplaces and homes and institutions and friendships um, because it is long overdue. I love that. And with the friend analogy too, that's something you guys put in perspective for me. An ally is not something you call yourself. It's something somebody else calls you. I think that's a really important distinction. And it is kind of like being a friend. I can't just say I'm someone's friend. Don't they have to co-sign that? <laughs> Is that a two-way street? That, that's what I've been saying. And, and and it was like a revolution when I brought it up in an interview early on where people were like, wait, you said people can't call themselves allies? I was like, yeah, they can't. Like, we're supposed to it, we're supposed to be the same, the, the one, just like a feminist. Like, a guy can't pull up on you and be like, I'm a feminist. And he's totally. a trash to women. Totally. You know what I mean? And it's like, I like you, so I'm a feminist. What? That's not how it works, bro. <laughs> it works between us and with what you do and how you treat women and how you perceive women and in society like and i have to say that you're a great feminist not you claiming that shit uh for yourself it's so common sense but we've never taken time to step back and just like wait a minute let's look at what's happening this book is an incredible resource in in self-reflection and taking action moving forward and strengthening interpersonal relationships for aspiring allies as you call it and just thank you so much for the work you put out into the world. And can you tell people where to find you and the Kins Women podcast specifically? Because you have this ongoing dialogue all the time outside of the book, right? Yeah. So our book is called Real Friends Talk About Race. Wherever you get your books, you can pick up a copy for you and a friend, hopefully. Um, and then our podcast, Kins Women Podcast, is available wherever you get your podcasts. And if anyone wants to continue the conversation, we would love to just hear thoughts and feedback. Um, we love hearing from people directly. So shoot us a message on Instagram. We're at the.kinswomen. Now, are you en yeah. engaging with book, oh, sorry, with book clubs in any way, specifically if people want to do this as a part of their book club? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it'd be so cool if, um, you know, we got we got requests to, I, well, we have gotten a, a couple of requests to join in and like talk to book clubs, but um, we're happy to help in any way that we can help facilitate those kinds of conversations among people. I know that it's hard to have the tools, but the book is a great place to start 
But this would be a great book club book. I mean, we're not saying that they're easy or comfortable conversations, but um, both of us love the juiciness <laughs> of discomfort. And I think they lend themselves well to to book club dialogues. Yeah. I'd add also that like Hannah started her own podcast and that'd be really cool because we do have two personalities and like we do exist outside mm-hmm. of the Kinswoman. Hannah has a new podcast uh, that's she's, you know, having her own conversation. I'm also launching a podcast um and so if people want to like discover us also in our own spaces that they're they're free to i mean by all means what are each of your podcasts called mine's called the hannah summerhill show um and it's about the intersection of personal growth and pop culture two of my loves and mine is tell me who you are i have not launched because i've been super busy and traveling but soon i'm putting it out uh and it's all about um telling me who you are the juicy conversation between two two people uh, my guest and myself about who they are who how they've just they've come to realize who they were are and then also connecting with the societal kind of like structural uh conversation to why we say that we are what we are so yeah it's a self-indulging space that i'm like super excited to entertain well let me know when it comes out so i can share and I love the verbiage of the juiciness of uncomfortable personal conversations. We use that word juice with like entertainment news, but there's so much juice to yeah. be found in our <laughs> immediate lives and stories. I love it. And I love, I, I love it. Something that I, I see in the two of you is just like this deep dive factor that I really appreciate. Both of you like to like go deep and dissect, which um, I really it just think is awesome. I love so, exhausting yeah, detail. I share that. <laughs> <laughs> oh me too. Me too. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you guys are awesome. Thank you for the book. Thank you for your time. Hope you have a great rest of your okay. evening, Izu morning, yeah. and let's stay in yes. touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Us. All right, guys. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I really, really enjoyed talking to them, reading their book. Be sure to check out Real Friends Talk About Race wherever books are sold, and uh, listen to Hannah and Izu's podcast, The Kinswoman. I hope everybody had a great week if you want to share with a friend rate and review five stars it's so so helpful bonus episodes on patreon.com slash be there in five about my more like fleeting pop culture hot takes um and yeah i hope you'll come back next week we have lots of fun stuff in store for the summer including me lining up all of the most requested guests uh for my i put this in quotes matt leave where I'll still like be around, but I just don't know how I'm going to feel. So I want to have some episodes locked and loaded, but it's hard to talk to yourself like a month in advance, then put it, you know, I just, (laughs) I want to like have fun conversations for you. So I have some, uh, friends subbing in, in the pop culture sphere that I'm excited about. But anyway, love you guys. Thank you for the privilege of your time. And as always, let me know your thoughts and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear.